Hello and welcome to the Jesuit Border Podcast. This podcast explores the humanitarian response along the U.S.-Mexico border from a Catholic perspective. My name is Louis Hotop. And I'm Brian Strasberger. We're a pair of Jesuit priests missioned to the Diocese of Brownsville, Texas. We're not from the border, but we live here now. This podcast highlights some of the work that the Catholic Church and others are doing to address the needs along the border. The Jesuit Border Podcast is edited and produced by the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the U.S. and hosted by the Jesuit Post. Let's begin. Vamos! In this episode, we're going to talk about particular vulnerabilities. We will be interviewing Father Matt Kazora, who is a Holy Cross priest from Indiana, studying in law school at Notre Dame. He spent a couple months in Brownsville this summer, interning with Project Dignity legal team, and best of all, living with the two of us. Stay tuned for that, but first, let's talk about this phrase, particular vulnerabilities. It's a criteria for exemptions to Title 42. Uh, listeners of this podcast will be familiar with Title 42. The U.S.-Mexico border is effectively closed to asylum seekers right now because of it. But one way for vulnerable migrants to be admitted into our country is by getting exempted from Title 42 because of a particular vulnerability. And with this particular vulnerability, they're able to get the help from different groups, advocacy groups and lawyers, to help them cross into the United States under what's called humanitarian parole. So in this moment, that's kind of the avenue that people are taking uh, to, to enter into the U.S. And so for all the vulnerabilities that exist, and there, there are many ways to express it, many ways to go about it, and lawyers are finding different ways, and migrants themselves, and advocacy groups, but one that we've really focused on are pregnant women. That's right. The category of particular vulnerabilities is a lot of gray area. You know, you ask a typical lawyer, and they want things black and white, but vulnerabilities Gosh, there are so many different things that could qualify as a vulnerability. I mean, if, you, if, you ha- if you're blind, okay, that could be a particular vulnerability. If you have a terminal illness, okay, that could be a particular vulnerability. If you're a single mother with four kids under the age of 10, is that, and you're living in Reynosa, Mexico, is that a particular vulnerability? But yeah, I think uh, many advocates uh, would definitely be very easily in agreement, and certainly even the Port Authority of the U.S. government has made it clear that pregnant women are a category that fits very well under particular vulnerabilities. And at first, when we were working in the plaza, we were, that was the phrase we were using to kind of say, like, these are the people that we can really focus on, that we can really help. And part of that was just because there's so many people with these particular vulnerabilities, so many different categories that they could fall into, that we didn't want to get swamped with so many cases of different people trying to help them. So we just said, we're going to help pregnant women in this moment to make our lives a little easier. But as time has gone on, we've become like the pregnancy police, you know, like, <laughs> <laughs> like people are reporting different, uh, you know, pe- women who are pregnant, they're reporting them to us and giving us some of their information, contact information. And so again and again, we're getting kind of lists from, especially from one of the, one of the shelters that we work with, lists of women who are, who are in this state, who have this particular vulnerability and wanting to know how we can help them. Yeah, and we're happy to help. Uh, you know, we want to help every migrant that we meet, but it does become tough because there are thousands of migrants with all kinds of needs. And so how do you address and help every person? Well, it, you know, it's just, not, it's just not reasonable. It's not possible. And so 
when we're doing our ministry, we want our primary ministry to be pastoral accompaniment. We celebrate mass with people. We like to have conversations to talk about their experience and that sort of a thing. So if we, you know, tell everyone that we meet, okay, like I, tell me your vulnerability when whatever it is, we're going to, I'm going to submit it to some human rights advocates or some lawyers and let's see what we can do for you. Well, the next day we come into, into, into the plaza, into a camp, into a shelter, you know, there'd be a, a mob of people trying to share with us their particular vulnerability, whatever it might be. And the situation is very sensitive. I mean, migrants living in, in these conditions are experiencing all kinds of trauma, past and present. They're uh, living in very abject difficult conditions that you wouldn't wish anybody to live into. So of course they're going to seek help. But we've known other advocates that can't even step foot in some of the shelters because they've been identified as someone who helps anyone and listens to anyone with any vulnerability. So addressing pregnant women was sort of a way for us to at least resist that temptation to be overwhelmed by so many people. Yeah, and it's not an easy thing to have to say, I'm sorry, we can't help you. You know, maybe there are other resources we can recommend, but I... But just to keep our own sanity and to continue to be able to do our own pastoral work, we just had to make that decision. And, and there are other resources out there, and very often we point people in the right direction. But even recently, you know, we've been working at Casa del Migrante. We've, we've, we've really built a relationship there by saying mass and, and celebrating with people, visiting with the kids, doing, you know, just building those social connections that are so essential to the pastoral work that we're doing. And some of that has come back even through this particular vulnerability work, trying to get people in the, you know, with those right connections in different categories. And so we've been receiving names and names and names of people who've passed through Casa del Migrante who, or women who are on the streets who are pregnant, who maybe pass by or have a connection in the shelter, and then they pass on their information to us. So we've been, we've been categorizing and filling out spreadsheets and getting all this information together also that we can help this particular vulnerability that, you know, the pregnant women that we, we said we would focus on. Yeah, it's so funny that we thought it was like our way to get out of having to do too much of this work, right? <laughs> it's like, let's just say only pregnant women, because it was like there was a time where we were only running into them on very kind of rare sporadic occurrences. But, the, but yeah, like you said, the floodgates have kind of opened. And now uh, I don't want to say we've gone viral, Louis, <laughs> but we've certainly gotten a, a lot more people kind of coming forward and reaching out within a particular network to share their information, uh, name, the amount, the amount of months they are along in their pregnancy, and then a WhatsApp phone number. So we get just this list of them in this one chat that we're in. And so we've been reaching out to them one by one and trying to take down their information. But uh, at the date of this recording, we've done about 60 people in the span of three weeks. I mean, that's a lot. That's a lot of cases, and that's a lot of people. And it's important to think about, well, and what is the experience like to be a pregnant woman who's made this journey and is now living in northern Mexico? Yeah, of course. And, you know, we even tried to... We even tried to protect ourselves a little bit, like through these chats. We tried to protect ourselves by setting up a WhatsApp business account for each one of us. And so we're, what's our name? Jesuitas del, del, del Valle. Valle. Yes. <laughs> the Jesuits very, of the Valley. Very anonymous. Who could it be? Uh, and so we used that name, that sort of anonymous name or, or more of a corporation name, to, to help people so that they can't pinpoint exactly who it is. So we always refer to the, the team, the equipo that, that is helping people out, or we've got our team that we can refer you to. 
but that that ruse really did not last. You kind of got long. cornered on it, didn't you? You kind of got, got cornered. I got cornered. I showed up at Casa del Migrante. This was like days after setting up the account. I got cornered, and they were like, they were like, okay, so we have these cases, and we we want we want you to help with this, and we've got you know these women are new, and maybe you could help them because they're pretty far along in their pregnancy. And I was like, well, you know, we'll see. I've got to contact the team to see if I can get them to get on board. And they're like. We know that you. <laughs> we know you're the team. We know you're the one. <laughs> so it's it's not really that effective, but it does it does help us a little to to not get swarmed by people. Although it's happening anyway. A little bit of all of that's happening, but I think I think we, we're doing it with the right intentions to at least keep some sort of you know public ministry versus some of this work uh, a little bit of a balance between it but it's not a it's not a perfect system but the bottom line is we're we like to think we're contributing some good and we've gotten messages from people as recently as this morning saying thank you so much for helping with my case i have i've been admitted through uh, this human this exemption to title 42 into the united states and i'm going to be able to uh, get the prenatal care that's necessary i mean that's what what the, the particular vulnerability his or his really is that they just don't have access to adequate prenatal care. I mean, you can imagine what it's like, you know, not having a hospital or a doctor that you're able to go to. But, you know, we got to give a, a real shout out in the work that we're doing here to one individual in particular that seems to be the main motivator of this chat that's sharing all the pregnant women with us. Sure. This is a, a guy that, that we've met at Casa del Migrante. He's a really, a guy from Haiti himself. And then he lived in Brazil for for over 10 years after he left Haiti because of the violence and, and some some particular circumstances that he was in, he had witnessed the death of a friend. And so the, that kind of thing, you know, we hear stories like that so much, but then, you know, when that person's face-to-face with you, you start to see the, the real impact it has on them personally. And so I was talking to him one day, and uh, he was telling me all about the list that he's working through. And and I started thinking about him, you know, who is this guy that's living here at Casa del Migrante, that's living here with mostly women, who is helping to process all these cases for for women who are pregnant, because we told him that's what we wanted to do. You know, what's his what's his vision for himself? What's what does he imagine is gonna happen? And so I was just like, Noxie, what do you what do you think? You know, what do you think your case is gonna be? Like, who are you here with? And he goes, Oh, well, I'm not here with my family. I, I don't have anybody with me. I'm traveling alone. And I was like, well, do you have family in the U.S.? No, I don't have family in the U.S. Well, when was the last time you felt connected to your family in Haiti? Well, it's been, you know, so many years since I've been away and all these things. And all these kind of puzzle pieces are adding together. Here's a single guy who's traveling alone, who's really devoting himself to this kind of service to help us out. He doesn't really have a plan and he doesn't have a family, you know, so... So I'm thinking in my mind, I went up to Brian afterwards and I was like, you know, I if I'm putting these puzzle pieces together right, it's possible that this guy might be LGBT, he might be gay, he might he might have something going on in that kind of category, which is also a particular vulnerability. And could I take the risk to try to figure that out? You know, that's it's a very, very sensitive topic. It is not something that's easy for migrants to talk about culturally very often, but also just safety-wise, it's not a very easy topic. And so, and so I, I went to Brian and, and he said, well, see if you can find a way to, to bring it up. Yeah, because it, it is a particular vulnerability. And even beyond that, it, 
is one of the categories that can grant you asylum. So there are five categories for which you could seek asylum, including uh, oppression for your political beliefs uh, or your religious uh, beliefs. But another one of those categories is membership in a particular social group. And so the LGBT community is recognized as a social group. And so if you're a member of that group and you come from a country or culture where you felt oppression or persecution or prejudice because of that, you can qualify for asylum. So that's why it's uh, it's one of the categories that we also want to be attentive to. Sure. And, and, you know, like it took a, it took a little while. I, I mentioned it to him. I mentioned, you know, if you do find anyone in this category, maybe, you know, have them contact us too, because we know a lawyer, we know somebody or a group that can help them. And so he was like, oh, okay, I'll see, I'll see about it, you know. I'll, I, but then he, he added, you know, not many people talk about that because it's so, it can be dangerous. And I said, okay, yeah, I understand. That's why we try to, we try to be discreet as possible. Anyway, that same night, he reached out to me with his own name to add to that list and to seek help for being, for being gay. And then uh, the name of two other friends of his that he knows who are also on the border. So it just shows like this, this idea of particular vulnerability. We're talking about true vulnerabilities. A woman who's eight months pregnant, who's sleeping on the ground, who's sleeping on the concrete, who's, who, who doesn't have resources. And then these individuals who fall into the, the LGBT category who, who are fearful for even just being themselves, you know, fearful for, for expressing themselves or saying one fact about themselves in front of someone else that could lead to violence, could lead to death, could lead to anything being taken advantage of. So, so it's definitely something that's very real. And, and this gray area exists, I think, this gray area exists because people are complicated, you know? This gray area exists because we don't always fall into these neat spaces. But for that, you know, we're grateful to have the opportunity to sit and listen to people and to help them in whatever way we can. Yeah, particular vulnerabilities, it can be very expansive and provides a lot of gray area. But it is important to, to think about how many of these cases we're speaking about, gosh, really are life or death. I mean, a, a woman giving birth on a street in Reynosa, I mean, that's life and death for the mother and for the child. I mean, these are, we're talking about people's lives at stake. And for someone who is a member of the LGBT community, it, it can be a question of life or death, of embracing your identity and, and identifying it publicly in any way. And you, and you got, I got a real sense of that, uh, you know, from our interactions with, with Noxy and, and certainly uh, with the pregnant women that we've dealt with. And so it's an important topic and one that we were happy to talk about and bring up for this episode. And you're going to hear it come up because our guest for this week is Father Matt Kazora, who spent some time working with cases of particular vulnerabilities this summer during his time in Brownsville. Today, we're pleased to welcome as our guest, Father Matt Kazora, a priest of the Congregation of Holy Cross. Father Matt grew up in Indiana and attended Notre Dame for undergrad. He's been ordained for about 10 years now, uh, but finished up his second year of law school and came and joined us to live for a couple months here in Brownsville, helping at the Project Dignity legal team. We're glad to have you with us here, Matt. You're very welcome. It's an honor to be with you. Great. Maybe we could start just by uh, asking you to share a little bit about what it was that inspired you to come down to the Valley and spend the summer with us. 
One of my brothers in Holy Cross often comes to Brownsville and McAllen to work with Sister Norma Pimentel. Uh, he got to meet her a couple of years ago. She was on campus as well. She's built some connections and he was going down to serve at Thanksgiving last year. And as offhand comment, I said, hey, Joe, ask sister if she might need an attorney. It's like, I'll ask. And I just thought it was a throwaway. He comes back and says, sister's starting this new initiative. She could use all the help she can get. Give her a call. It's like, oh, boy, here we go. But I was just so excited about that. I can tell you more about that if you'd like. But just an opportunity to use my law degree to help people seeking a better life, seeking asylum, uh, really in, in many ways, seeking recognition for the human dignity and worth that they have as children of God. That's really why I came down. And what a juxtaposition, right? Going from going from law school and being so entrenched in that reality and then coming down here where it's like kind of an open field and anybody's guess what's really going on and kind of how to organize something. And then you stepped into a new project that was getting started with the with the help of Sister Norma and Catholic Charities and Project Dignity Legal Team. So what was that like, that kind of like that whiplash transition from law school and then being on the ground here and, and working in uh, uh, an area that demanded creativity, I'm sure, and uh, some, some patience and adaptation? That was certainly a whiplash. So law school is very organized, very set. I had also been studying in Europe the semester prior. So I'd been in London where I was doing different kinds of law, though some connections through human rights and international law, but, you know, looking at corporate law and other things like that, but even the weather was so different. Dreary London, though I love it, coming down to Brownsville, Texas, not a cloud in the sky, very warm. And everything that I was asked to do was very unstructured. It was fertile ground, but just brand new. I felt very fortunate that the day I started was the same day that uh, the real attorney, Will Stevens, that he started as well. So sister really did our orientation together and brought us to meet the important people that we were going to work with together. So that meant meeting with port directors, both in McAllen and in Brownsville, meeting with uh, U.S. diplomats in Mexico, different nonprofits on both sides of the border. So it was wonderful just to be there at the ground floor. And we also really owe a, a huge debt of gratitude to the many, many people who are doing the kind of work that we ended up doing, but what they've been doing for a long time, mostly in McAllen, Texas. They were wonderful to kind of open their books, if you will, kind of show us their methods so we could learn from them, and if possible, adapt it to our situation, perhaps even improve it, and go from there. So really standing on the shoulders of giants, I would say, uh, but then getting to look at the situation in the smallest level in Matamoros and in Brownsville. How could we make this really flourish with the people there on the ground, both the migrants, uh, law enforcement, and everybody else involved. Uh, one thing I will say, in my past life, many past lives ago, I was an accountant. So at Notre Dame, that's what I studied, and I hated the classes where they made us do programming, like using Excel and the spreadsheets. But there was a lot of need, even for those skills, because you're looking in, at uh, a lot of data and trying to organize it in a way that we can streamline it and present it in the way that Border Patrol needs, but also we could provide to Sister Norma so she could advocate for more of a systemic or structural reform. If we were on the ground, she was working kind of behind the scenes and you know, that data processing, that programming came in handy as well. So it just used many different skills and uh, yeah, real honor to see it flourish. So McAllen, Reynosa, kind of one area here in the RGV and the Rio Grande Valley, and then 
Project Dignity legal team more focused in the Brownsville, Matamoros area. And so tell us a little bit about the objectives of Project Dignity legal team. What, what is this organization? It's got roots with Catholic Charity. And what were you, uh, what could you say about the work that you were doing, uh, getting things started with that organization this summer? Yeah, this is actually the second iteration of Project Dignity legal team. It's wholly under Catholic Charities Rio Grande Valley. Uh, between the two iterations, uh, different immigration policies had changed, uh, transition between presidential leadership of the United States. Uh, long story short, it was dormant, and we came in and restarted to address the situation, which is specifically linked to the pandemic, uh, COVID-19 pandemic. So there's a health, co health code that's called Title 42. And with that, it basically prevents any new asylum claims. So the United States, like many, many other countries, has an international obligation to welcome people who are persecuted on account of their race, religion, nation of origin, political belief, or membership in a particular category. This really kind of came out of the horrors of the Holocaust and World War II and other situations of genocide. The world said, we'll never do this again. We want to help people to escape that. We want to protect them, especially in a way that it doesn't ask the question about how to intervene with with force, let's say. It says, who are people in need and how can we help them? That's what we're talking about there. And yet, because of the pandemic, this health code was invoked, so no one could come and ask for this asylum. If they were fighting for democracy in a place where they had an authoritarian regime, if their houses were being bulldozed by tanks and their, their neighbors were being murdered in the street because of what they believed or who they were, that's what this code entails. And certainly, our country needs to uh, be careful with health crises. It's a global issue. And yet, uh, it really was hard to accept that, given that, that long, long history and the current need. There was one exception, however. If a person was, quote, particularly vulnerable, end quote, they could be given an exception to this Title 42. That wasn't an automatic for asylum. It meant that if they were vetted by the Border Patrol to make sure they didn't have uh, a criminal history in their home country or along the way to the U.S. border, if they hadn't been previously deported from the United States, and then if they had this particular vulnerability, they could be admitted into the U.S. to ask for asylum. The asylum process is another six to 12 months, which we actually did not focus on. We just focused on that very first step. So uh, I could explain some of the particular vulnerabilities, but basically it's not a very specific legal term. It's really left to the port directors to look at particular cases and decide what might qualify, what might not. And as you get to hear people's stories, that does make sense in a, in a way that everybody is very different. You know, a family of five with one experience is different than another family of five. Still, as a lawyer, that didn't make me feel very comfortable. Uh, you know, I would really like to see that concrete black letter right there. So that was something we needed to work through. And I think we did that with a lot of mutual respect and building up rapport and trust with the authorities and our partners in the Valley, certainly with the migrants to make that happen. Project Dignity, uh, to answer your question too, its long-term plan is to get into helping people with individual cases who are already in the United States, perhaps with those asylum claims, perhaps with other uh, regularization of immigration status, for example, or other immigration issues. Every migrant has a story and those stories are different. Uh, 
and and yet they're so important when you get that chance. And so it's such a privilege sometimes, I think, to be able to to hear those stories, to enter into someone's life, uh, the way a migrant might open up and share about the hardships and struggles of the place where they're leaving, some of the obstacles that they face in their journey, what it's been like, you know, waiting at a at a border that's effectively closed. And then especially when you're talking about cases that are that are particular have particular vulnerabilities, uh, which reveals that there's a lot of struggles that people are facing. So I wonder, you know, now looking back a couple months later, I'm sure I'm sure there are a few of those stories, those migrant stories that you you've had the privilege to encounter that have have really stuck in your heart uh, and that you return to sometimes. So I wonder if you could share one or two of the stories of, of a migrant that that, you know, hasn't left you. Wow, it's gonna be hard to just pick a couple. I mean, like you're saying, so powerful and really inspiring individuals in in every case. Uh, the first one I'll, I'll think of or share with you is the first one we encountered. Uh, so a young couple, recently married, uh, maybe four or five years from Haiti originally. And because of violence there, natural disaster, uh, economic hardship, wanted to find a better life, they initially got a visa, humanitarian visa, uh, outside of Haiti, but not to the U.S., there was a program in Brazil and a program in Chile. And those visas were very limited. And so unfortunately, they had to make the tough choice. It was important enough to seek a better life outside of Haiti that they would split up. So the wife went to Brazil and the husband to Chile. After several years, I believe that visa was expiring. They experienced other hardships in those countries. And they just wanted to be together, which would make sense. So they made a plan to rendezvous in Colombia. And from Colombia... They hitchhiked, but mostly walked from Columbia to Texas. This is thousands of miles, very difficult terrain, very hostile environment. I'll tell you, there is a highway that runs from Canada to the tip of South America, to Chile and Argentina, the Pan American Highway. It's a constant road that we can drive nonstop, except for 70 miles, called the Darien Gap. That's a place where the terrain is so inhospitable, natural disasters, a cartel that are in control. In other ways, too, it's an environmentally protected area, but because of all those reasons, there is not a highway there. There's no road, no bus, no truck can pass through there. And so people like this couple had to traverse it on foot, in the mud, in the rain, with the cartels, with the poison stakes, everything. They got through that. And on top of that, for about the last five or six months of this journey, the the wife there was pregnant. Oh, my gosh. So this young couple has been through so, so much. And they had about a month or so in a shelter just on their side of the border. And she, at that point, she's about eight and a half months pregnant. She's experiencing complications. We bring this to Border Patrol and say, this is a very extremely vulnerable person. We're afraid that she's going to have to give birth in the shelter, which is ill-equipped for medical care. And they were wonderful. They said, absolutely. It was a very quick turnaround, actually quicker than we expected. But people rallied and cared for that family. But I just think about them in so many ways, uh, journeying in this very difficult situation. Um, you know, I, I love that we were able to help them because of the dignity that they have inherently. As I talk to people who are perhaps more skeptical and want to talk about uh, immigrants and their effect on the workforce or uh, social safety nets, whatever that might be, I don't go there at all. But if I was going to answer that question, I, I respond by saying, you know, look how far these people went on foot, through hardship, do you think they're going to show up to work on time? 
<laughs> I mean, it's kind of like, yeah, this is exactly who we want to have here if you're going to look at it from that economic uh, angle. So that's just, and it's a, a kind, kind family, and I just wish them the best and really excited. They had their baby, uh, baby's very healthy. So great news on that one. Um, another one, too, I'd like to share um, a gentleman from Honduras, and uh, there he experienced so much uh, crime, but also violence directed toward him. He had actually uh, suffered a, a violent incident where uh, both of his forearms were, were cut off. And uh, so he had made his way to the U.S.-Mexico border and was trying to survive there as someone who spoke Spanish, uh, but as a foreigner and someone who was you know, inflicted or given a disability, if you will, you know, really had suffered. And he had a very positive spirit and, and was patient in so many ways I could never be. And that's just another case of someone who, though able-bodied and, and hardworking, just could not be in that part of the world. And why we talk about this particular vulnerability is there just aren't the kind of services on that side of the border at that place. Uh, they weren't designed to care for migrants like in bigger cities like Monterey or Mexico City. But initially, people stayed close there because they'd get a call for their immigration hearing uh, really quickly. There'd be a quick turnaround under a former program, which has now been discontinued and struck down by the U.S. Supreme Court, or at least the court granted the Biden administration the ability to strike it down. While that program is no longer in place, though it's still working its way out, that created this backlog over several years, which was complicated by the Title 42 code. So a gentleman like this felt like he had to stay there where there wasn't sufficient running water, medical care, certainly even housing. And so I think about him and, and what he went through. And the last thing I'll share with you is we started to see at the end of my time uh, which was this summer in August, many, many indigenous individuals, both from Mexico and other parts of Latin America. Maybe their children spoke Spanish. Mo many of the adults did not. So you had that extra layer of uh, a protected class, we could call it, with asylum, but of hardship. Uh, people took advantage of them in horrible ways. And by people, I think of the cartels, organized crime, but other people just who didn't really, I don't know, didn't respect them. I should just say that and not judge. But uh, I just think about them and what they went through. And there's one image in my mind of a family crossing the border. So there's a big bridge from the Mexican side to the Texas side. You're kind of walking uphill, if you will. And there's a fence on both sides. The river's below you. They're getting close to the U.S. border guards there. Um, and as they get there, you can just see the back of the family with their profile. Uh, the mom has her baby on her back in a bit of a sling, if you will, kind of on there. And then they're carrying everything they have. It's one pink rolling suitcase and not the big checked bag one, like the overhead compartment one. They had to leave so quickly. They couldn't take anything with them. No beloved toys for the kids. Certainly no favorite rocking chair in the family. Perhaps a picture or two, but without the frame. And really just the documents they needed and whatever bare bones clothes they could bring along the way. Uh, it just strikes me at, at the hardships that they've endured. But also being a priest and a studying attorney, a train, attorney in training, people opened up about their faith. And that really makes me think of that family who said, I didn't need those other things. I brought what was most important to me, which is my family and my relationship with God, who's going to carry me through that, had carried them all this way to come to the U.S. border. And they hoped, they knew that God would still be with them in this long process of asylum, which was still awaiting them once they crossed over. I, th you know, I just listening to you tell those stories, 
it's a reminder of a part of that identity as priests is is to sort of be be that person that collects these stories from other people, be that that witness that gets to hear about people's faith, gets to hear about their hardships, gets to hear about the journey that they've been on. And we find that too, that in so many of our experiences, people will sit down with us and just kind of empty out everything. You know, they'll take that bag and they'll dump it everywhere and say like, this was a moment of joy and this was a moment of real sorrow and tragedy and they'll share it all. And I, I think that is a privilege, like you're saying, it's a privileged position to be in and it's very humbling and it can be very emotional. And I'm, you know, I'm wondering, you came here to provide legal aid, you know, you came here to provide legal aid and, and I'm, I am certain and I witness that you did. And I wonder how, how this experience has also maybe impacted your priesthood. You know, how, how has this experience not changed because you're already a great priest, but, but how, has it, how has it added on to your own experience of priesthood? So halfway through the summer, uh, we got a really nice surprise. So the local newscaster had uh, a good relationship with Sister Norma and called her one day, a random day, said, Sister, can we get you live on TV at 10 in the morning? She's like, yeah, sure. Uh, okay. She sent a crew out to her office and she's there. She doesn't know why she's there. And they say, Sister, you know, I, I had a chance to go to Rome to interview the Pope. And Sister's like, oh, great. You know, and she's like, well, hang on. And they play this clip from the interview. At the end of the interview, the interviewer asks Pope Francis if he knows Sister Norma. The interviewer has heard that they've worked together. He says, oh, yes, of course, the sister who works with the, the migrants on the border. And the interviewer asks him if he'd like to send a message. He looks right at the camera and says, is she going to see this? She's like, yes, of course. He locks in there for like two or three minutes, not just a, hey, how are you? But deeply connected, thanking Sister Norma for her work, saying, do not be afraid, take heart. And what stuck with me the most, too, he said that in each migrant, you see the face of Jesus and Mary and Joseph, who had to flee to Egypt. They were being persecuted because of their faith, who they were with the threat of death. And they had to go to a foreign land. They had to walk. They had to endure horrible things. So by ministering to the modern modern family and its flight to, your, to Egypt, we're able to see the face of Jesus. I've had many privileged opportunities to serve people who are in need. We can think about Matthew 25 at the second half there, in whom we find Christ hungry, naked, in prison. I hadn't had that same experience with people like this, families like this, especially connecting to that particular life and sorrow of Mary. Uh, that really just made that deeper, I suppose, in my relationship with Jesus and my relationship with the Holy Family. And to translate it out to my active ministry, in addition to that reflection internally, uh, just finding ways to share that in preaching, in conversations day to day, I suppose evangelizing through that ministry, not everybody's going to have a chance to be there on the border or to work in legal affairs and certainly not legal affairs as a priest, right? But to welcome them into that experience, to share that, buoyed by Pope Francis's words, which Sister Norma's crying, we're all crying, listening to it like days later. Uh, but then think about what he was trying to draw our attention to. And just every day we're able to do that there. And every day I would say since remembering that and letting it burn brightly in my heart. I'm going to switch gears here. You know, one, one way that our, our scripture often talks about migrants is being strangers in a strange land. 
And, you know, one way that I think you've kind of had that personal experience of being a stranger in a strange land is moving into a Jesuit community this summer. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, I was thinking maybe you could start with me and just say the things you liked about living with me, and then you could say the things you liked about living with Brian. We'll probably uh, measure the lists and see which one is longer after, so tread lightly. See, see who holds a bigger place in my heart. Uh, right. It's going to be a tie. It's going to be a tie. Well, you know, our communities are different in many ways. Yours is much older, more expansive. At least one pope. <laughs> I mean, come on. Uh, that's much different. Holy Cross, uh, we just celebrated our 175th anniversary uh, in 16 countries around the world. Um, I've lived with Jesuits actually before in New York City when I was an undergrad. have some other amazing Jesuit friends. Uh, I think what unites us is that diversity of ministry that we do. So I see our communities able to do that together. And that was just a fun thing to hear more stories and, and to compare notes and see that. But just share too how our formations experiences are similar and yet different. Uh, Father Brian and I are basically the same age. And um, I've been ordained 10 years this year. Father Brian? Uh, one year. One year. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, that was an interesting thing. And I was really flattered. Uh, at one point, Father Brian had his first funeral with ashes present, right? That's Instead right. of the body and stuff. And so we had a great conversation about ways to pastorally yeah. do that. You know, in, in my experience, I had a chance to do that. So that was just a fun thing to be able to do. And I'll say, I thought that Holy Cross had good parties and good social life, but the Society of Jesus certainly celebrates well. And I there was we really <laughs> glad to be a part of that. That was awesome. That's right. We come for the party. We come for the party. Well, you might bring the party. I don't yeah, know. I don't know. <laughs> well, no, we appreciate you having uh, having you live with us uh, this past this past summer for a couple months. We can no longer consider you a stranger to strange land. Uh, Brownsville is very much your home. Casa Miguel Pro, you're always welcome to come back. In fact, we, if you could just send us the email for your superior after this, uh, after this call, we'd like to actually reach out to him because we need to get you back here. All right. I'm on board <laughs> with that. We'll see what he says. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, Father Matt Cazora, for joining us on the Jesuit Border Podcast. It's been great to have you. It's uh, great to see you and hope to see you in next summer. That'd be wonderful. See what we can do. God bless you and all the work you do. And God bless all those people who are listening. Thank you. Well, that's our episode for this week. We're grateful to Father Matt Kazora for joining us. This podcast is edited and produced by the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the U.S. and hosted by the Jesuit Post. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to hear more about the U.S.-Mexico border from a Catholic perspective. We'll see you next week on the Jesuit Border Podcast. Nos vemos! <laughs>